That is exciting. Uh, welcome to Anacostia River Church. I'm George. I'm one of the pastors here. And so we'd like to welcome you. I know we've got many from the Just Gospel Conference. Just again, because some people came in a little late. Raise your hand if you came into town for the Just Gospel Conference. Awesome. Welcome. Thank you for sticking around an extra day to come hang with us today. We hope that it's a, it's a comfort to you and that it's beneficial. If you need a Bible, please now raise your hand. And we got some folks who will bring a Bible to you if you need one. Anybody else? One over here. Very good. So everybody's got their word available to them. Let's turn to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. For the past few days, as you saw, a good amount of us have been contemplating justice and the gospel. Now, how does the gospel message translate to just mercy on the block or just mercy in our government, or any other sphere of influence. Sometimes when we put our mind to these big topics, it can feel daunting, even overwhelming. So we have conferences to encourage one another in good works. Often, though, after we scatter... uh, It can be difficult when we're in the middle of a problem to to settle the the working solution. In the worst moments, it can even seem hopeless. And I don't think that was the tenor of the conference at all. It was a joyous occasion where it was a lot of building one another up. But when we're in the trenches, in the day-to-day, when we have to weather the storm, it can be difficult So how can we deal with loophole-filled policies, broken promises, or terrorizing pandemics? Well, there, we must dwell on the just gospel in totality. Not only that because we have been saved from our sins that we ought to do justice, but that justice and salvation have forever come to us hand in hand. See, the God we worship is the just and justifier. So the things that are the cause of suffering and which we work at as ambassadors of reconciliation can be understood as only a momentary affliction in the larger narrative where the just and justifier is eternal. Isaiah puts it like this, lift your eyes to the heavens And look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. This can only ever be true if God is sovereign, never to be usurped by other gods or the might of other nations, and always reigning, uh, and, and always within the reigning by his decree and his plan. Justice and salvation can occur eternally precisely because he is just and justifier. And it's from this lens that Joel writes his short book that can provide for us a hope within a spiritually locust-ravaged nation and world. Let's pray. 
Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that we'd hear the words of Joel and they might be a comfort to us and a calling to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As Mabuso brought out in week one of our study in this book, these are the days of Joel. So much is happening that can constantly discourage, discourage us and leave us with a sense of hopelessness. But then three weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Dennis that despite the ruin found in chapter one, there is a hope found in the God of Joel. Even Joel's name declares, Jehovah is Lord. And when the Lord revealed his name to Moses, he declared of himself that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and he relents over disaster. Therefore, we can return to him. He calls us to do so because he is jealous for what rightly belongs to him. So today we get to look at what God does in response to this heart repentance, all in according with his plan. What we find is not some sweet, nice little ending. No, it is an epic ending after a long story of despair. And the Lord, he, he delights in it. God's response begins the day of the Lord. Joel outlines the playing out of this day, and what we find is that Yahweh revels in righteous restoration. He does this by responding to his people in five ways. Pastor D touched on the first and second briefly with more treatment, so we'll examine those accordingly. But first, we'll start in chapter 2, where we see how the Lord regrows the land. Joel chapter 2, verse 18 through 27, what Pastor D calls the woo. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will make... I will, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears fruit. The fig tree and the wine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied, and, the praise, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never be put to shame. This initial response of God of regrowth 
is so dramatically a shift from the hopeless waistbound of the first chapter and the impending doom of anything in front of the Lord's army in chapter 2. Consider this contrast, utter ruin to whole restoration. This was God's response to a contrite rending of hearts, lament for the lost, solemn assembly, and weeping. The contrast is quite similar to the story of the prodigal son. From a self-imposed pigsty to a completely undeserved celebration of the son's return. The father had been waiting for the moment the son would return ever since he left. In the same way, God is waiting for his people to return so he can restore them completely. Let's, let's sit here for a second because it, it helps us to, to bring the biblical arc that is woven into Joel. And I was going to say, I'm never preaching the prophets again. Pastor T's always given me these prophets and I can't do it anymore. You got to take the whole book. You got to put it all in the middle. It's difficult. Okay? All right. Well, Joel, he was a well-read prophet. In his short letter, he references so much scripture. In fact, the the situation for why Israel is being judged and uh, the remedies for that judgment are they're assumed to be known. He know he thinks his readers like they get it. He hits Genesis, he hits Exodus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and other minor prophets. And then we find things that the New Testaments will will fully vet out in the Gospels and Acts and Revelation. So he's making quite a complete story, which provides for us a a better understanding of what's happening. So, So in that light, let's check out the land. Look at the imagery of restoration and how it's accomplished. The land first has to be cleared out by the Lord. The invaders must be driven out to the east and to the west. And that prophet uses this military language to convey how this gets accomplished. And that was springboarded from earlier in the chapter where we see this army of the Lord. The Lord's army is described as looking ahead at land like the Garden of Eden. Garden, put that in your, in your mind for a moment. We'll come back to it. Now, you can imagine whatever epic movie scene you want to, the Lord of the Rings, the Avengers, whatever it is, but you've got this huge mass of warriors. They're standing so maybe on, on the top of this hill looking for miles and miles at lush, good land. And their edict is to utterly destroy it. Everything. And if you look behind the army... There'd be complete desolation. Billows of smoke, everything has been conquered. There is no stopping the Lord's army. But the prophet, and he's writing to the inhabitants. So let's look at a, another vantage point of this scene. And note again the Garden of Eden. It's not misplaced for these readers. It's precisely invoking the pain of paradise lost. His readers knew the story of the garden well, 
So as the prophet is building up the ruin of the locusts in chapter 1 and the devastation of the Lord's army in chapter 2, he plants this quick seed of remembrance, the garden. The garden where the Lord walked in the cool of the morning with man. The garden where the ground produced plentifully. The garden where nakedness was not shame and death was not known. That garden is gone. The Lord closed it off with a winged, predatory, scary-looking cherubim and a flaming sword there. Paradise is lost. All is lost. Bringing up the garden is the way that the prophet is reminding the reader that such loss is a result of their own actions. Where then is the hope? The inevitability of conquer by this army leaves only one option. Turn away from what led to that destruction and towards the king of that commanding army. Repent, and maybe the king would relent, right? We already hit this a few weeks ago. And once that repentance occurs, the Lord starts the regrowth process by supplying for immediate needs. I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Then he turns the army from being against the land because he's jealous for it and turns the command from pure destruction to preparation. The army now is to drive out the invaders, rid the land of impurity, and make it holy. The invaders will be sent to a dry wasteland and into the sea. Note, the sea will be no more in the new creation, the word says. So this turns from this complete and unequivocal destruction into something different. He says, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. A few stanzas ago, it was obliteration. But now it is pure fulfillment of a promise to his people to have the land. In fact, we, we see the parallels to the initial entry into the land many years prior. Driving out the inhabitants so that the people could occupy the land. You remember what happened? The Lord commanded the people to go in and take the land. He defeated Shehan and Og so utterly that when the spies are talking to Rahab on the roof in Jericho, she says, we saw what the Lord did and our hearts melted in fear. We had no spirit left. So you see, from one vantage point, there was this great army of the Lord terribly rolling into the land. But from the other vantage point, the land was being purified. And though some like Rahab turned away from sin and towards the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath, many did not. And this purification never fully played out. The land was left uncleansed, filled with idols representing false gods that plagued the people all the way until the fall of their kingdom in the time that Joel was writing. Therefore, the restoration in Joel, this land regrowth, it was hoped for and anticipated not only through the exile into Babylon, not only when they were entering the, the promised land in the first place, 
but all the way back to Adam and Eve's banishment from the garden. What Joel is showing here is that this day of the Lord is what people have been waiting for ever since that fateful day. A new creation is being born. Check out what happens with the land. The pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. He has poured out for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors are full of grain. The vats overflow with wine and oil. The curse on the ground is lifted. The land produces the way it's supposed to. I I don't know about you, but I need that. This, This past week at work, it was terrible. I was pressing through spreadsheets for weeks, cells upon cells upon cells, and I only got out about 5% of the work I put in. I was banging my head wondering if anybody was going to notice or if I was just going to have to take it on the chin. That's the curse. All you want is one effort in and one result out. We don't have that anymore. Paradise is lost. The way things are supposed to work just don't work that way anymore. And these are just small issues. I'm talking about work. We've got much bigger issues going on. Much worse systems that aren't working as they were meant to work. But we have a hope. The hope that justice is coming. Redemption is coming. God himself is coming with this new land. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. That's the first response to his people. Regrowth of the land. God then backs up his second response, where we have a, uh, or I'm sorry, he backs it up with a second response. We have a deposit, a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. That's called regeneration through the Spirit. Let's keep reading. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. Among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, Pastor D covered this in detail in his last message. So we're not going to dwell here too long, but this is really important for chapter three. So we have to reiterate it. 
We see here that along with the process of renewal of the land, the Lord will also restore his people by pouring out his spirit, which is a restoration of fellowship. The pouring out of the spirit was an anointing understood at the time as something a king could bestow on others, even a sign of deity. It was a great seal of being chosen. This was known to, one, known to them at one level as Israelites. But the prophet understood again that this particular fashion of fellowship is quite different than the ones the Israelites were familiar with. In Deuteronomy 7, as Moses and the people were standing at the precipice of the promised land, reciting their history and the law, he tells them that they are indeed chosen and loved by God. And they have enjoyed nearness to God, not enjoyed by any other nation. He also makes it clear that they had really screwed up that relationship. He calls them a stiff-necked people. He'd been dealing with them for 40 years in the wilderness. So again, we see the parallel to our passage where a good land will be inherited by a chosen people. But as Joel has already outlined, they messed that up too. They had taken up so many idols and disobeyed, the, dis, uh, and disobeyed in the promised land that the Lord had sent locusts to invade. They keep saying this, failing, this, this, this kind of almost there, you know, there's a plan here, but it's failing every time. But still, the Lord will regenerate the people and the land will be regrown if they repent. So what that signals is that there is this higher and fuller restoration. Verse 32 says, there will be deliverance for those who the Lord calls. So he overrides the consistent and historical disobedience by calling people and pouring out his spirit on them to finally redeem all things to himself. How does this happen? Even the prophet Joel didn't have all the details on this. But he gets the most critical piece. To call on the name of the Lord. Now if you fast forward 550 years or so, we get the full story of how this happens. Peter and those who followed the man Jesus have the Spirit poured out on them. And Peter literally gives the answer to Joel's prophecy. He says in Acts 2 that they were standing there having the Spirit poured out in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And he gives the Jewish unbelievers the prescription for how to receive the promise of the prophet Joel. He says Jesus is Lord in Christ, that is Yahweh, that's their God who made them a chosen people, Israel, in the first place. It's all together What he tells them, as prophesied by Joel and reiterated by Peter, is for all people everywhere. So here's the way to receive the Spirit. Repent and believe on this Jesus. Understand, and this message is for all of us, understand that God who made all people loves you and he loves them. He made you and all people to glorify and enjoy life with him. Yet still, you and I and all people have sinned against the Creator God. 
We've done this by glorifying other things and choosing to enjoy the created things rather than him. This has broken our fellowship with him and deserves eternal separation and condemnation of death in hell. Yet still further, God loves us. That he himself came as a man named Jesus to die for our sins on the cross so that we could be restored to him by repenting of our sins and believing that only he can save us through his death on a cross and resurrection from the grave. The visual reflection of that spiritual reality is baptism. If you have questions on that, we can talk a bit later. You'll notice in verse 32 that the Lord calls these people. This is the regeneration of the people when he calls them. So how do we know who's called? Well, the passage, the verse tells us it's those who call on the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they have fellowship of the Holy Spirit from that moment on. That new fellowship is a seal, a deposit of an even fuller fellowship when he comes back to redeem all things to himself, regrows the land, restores his people, renders judgment on the nation, and rests in Zion. In case you're wondering if all these re-words are true, I encourage you to listen to Justin Gebney's sermon at the Just Gospel Conference about how this is all on the foundation of the rock. I'll leave that with you. Chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Here we're going to find two sides of the same response coin. On the day of the Lord... He will restore Judah and render judgment on the nations. The first point here is that you can't have one without the other. Verse 1 says that he will restore the fortunes of Judah. That means that fortunes, treasure, welfare, prosperity, goodness, wholeness was somehow lost. And this phrase, it's all over the Old Testament as a theme. And there is a host of things that played out for this loss to occur. Some were self-inflicted. Some were nations inflicted. But all of them were as a result of wrongdoing. All have sinned. So what does this have to do with rendering judgment then? Let's look at some material violations of the law. That would be the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses to bring to the people. A material violation of the law could be that something was taken from Israel by a nation unfairly without an equal and agreed upon measure of return. Stealing. Think about Egypt taking the people's freedom, the Philistines taking the ark. In each situation, it took God's judgment to restore the people what was rightfully theirs. Now, those are the easy situations. Let's look at one that's a little bit stickier. The Babylonians 
took temple treasures and destroyed the temple. And that's where we're at as a church in Jeremiah right now. Now, the way that God could restore the people could have been similar to the way he did with the Egyptians and the Philistine examples. But in this case, it's a little different. God uses the conduct of Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nehemiah, and Ezra to stir the heart of the king, causing him to command restoration of the temple and its treasures. So here we don't have the same type of judgment I've said is required to restore. But here's the thing. The restoration was not whole. Even though it was seemingly the political and the morally right thing to do, it still could never fully restore what had happened to those people. You remember when the temple was rebuilt? We went over it maybe a year ago. There were folks in the congregation, and, and, you, and you could hear this, 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 this joyful praise, but in the midst of it was this weeping, and it says some of the, some of the older folks who could remember the old temple, they were crying because as they're looking at the new temple, it just like paled in comparison. It just wasn't the same. So now we have some examples to give us some much-needed context for our text. Now let's look at how the Lord is going to render final judgment on the nations. So he's going to restore Judah, render final judgment. Verse 2, first, he will place them on trial. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people in my heritage, Israel. Here it is. The final subpoena. We've heard lots about subpoenas over the past year in the news. If you don't know what a subpoena is, it's an order to appear in court so that one may give account. The righteous judge has issued a subpoena to the nations on the following charges against God's people, Israel. Because they, the nations, have scattered them, Israel, God's people, among the nations, and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily, for you have taken my gold and my silver and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Notice these charges. They're egregious, licentious, even collaborative. His sins span far and wide, and they are singularly, singularly identified as being done against the plaintiff, Israel. Except, that we, also, we see that the, the judge mentions that Israel's things are also his things. So the identification of the plaintiff isn't so simple. 
It's not just Israel. It's God. The nations are sinning against God himself. Now that's an even higher charge. Breaking the law of God against the giver of the law and then they're to be judged by the righteous author of that law. The nations are guilty. So God will render judgment and restore Israel by rousing the whole earth. First, he will rouse his own people from exile and return payment to restore the fortunes of Israel. Verse 7, Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Second, he will rouse all of the nation's warriors to a final reckoning. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw from shining. Now imagine the scene. There is the judge... But rather than being in the courtroom, it's in this valley designated for judgment, decision, destruction. Still, this functions as an official court with the nations as the defendant and God as the judge. Now, in this scene, all of the eyes are on the judge. That's different. Most of the time, it's the defendant who draws the eyes. But here, there are too many defendants. And they're not nearly as great and terrible as the judge. All of these defendants standing, weapons in hand, ready to fight. And here, the the judge summons all attention with the bang of a gavel. And he renders judgment. The Lord roars from Zion. That's it. That's the verdict. That's the war. It's over. All the warriors, the weak and the strong, the young and the old, the men and the women, everybody. Isaiah 13 says, All hands go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. 
They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. Total and complete destruction of all the nations who served other gods and sinned. In our text, he mentions Tyrians and Sidonians, Philistines and Greeks. In other passages prophesying the same moment, we hear of the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, all the, all the ites. Don't get hung up on who. Because it's all the nations. Multitudes and multitudes. Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? Only one nation will stand. Verse 16. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This is the moment at the end of the scene where the survivors, still staring in awe at the judge reveling in his righteous restoration, look at one another in shock and joy. And the screen fades to black. This is where we'll take a moment to explain what this means for us. Mabuso said it in chapter one, these are the days of Joel. And Pastor D said we need to repent and cry out to God. Pastor G just told you that judgment is coming for the nations and only Israel will be saved. So if we're connecting the dots, we're realizing that in chapter 3, if we're not Israel, we are the nations. Which means judgment, not restoration, is coming for most of us in this room. I only know two people for sure who are technically qualified as Jewish, my wife and my daughter, and she married a Gentile, so that's an issue there too. But that, that can't be because the end of chapter 2 reads, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So I guess we have a little bit of work to do to, to figure this little book out. Let's take a step back. So much of the scriptures is filled with Israel and other nations' disobedience. Israel continuously shows itself grotesquely unfaithful, and the nations are consistently evil. Now, their historical judgments, they're only shadows of God's restorative justice. The same thing with any of the historical restorations. They're shadows. Fortunes are not restored fully, and judgment is not rendered completely until God steps in himself. But the way he does it is through this nation, this people, Israel. He promised Abram that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. And from that moment on, there's this long story which leads us to the one who is better than that group of people 
but from that group of people. One who could bear the name that is above all names. One that could bless all people by his word. One who could be the lamb for a burnt offering that Isaac could not have provided. One who could wrestle with God but not walk away with a limp like Jacob. One who was after God's own heart like David but actually had hold of it. One who would joyfully redeem like Boaz but by his own blood. One who who could allure more tenderly than Hosea with an irresistible grace. See, God himself, Jesus Christ, is the true Israel. He is the one that the judge is jealous for throughout all history and on that great and terrible day. And if he is the true Israel... Who then are the true nations? Everybody else. As Paul says in Romans, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's not about blood. Okay, so now we've got God the judge, Jesus, Israel the plaintiff, and the nations, the defendants, all at this valley of decision. I'm still not fitting in this equation if I'm just looking at the text. But again, in verse 232, we with the Spirit are going to be saved. And the Spirit was given to those who call on the Lord before the day of the Lord. So there will be an escape for those with the Spirit on Mount Zion. The escape isn't some cave The escape is not some Wakandan force field. Now be real. Nothing is going to stop the roar of the Lion of Judah. The escape is not because judgment will never come. The escape is through Israel. The true Israel who preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jew and Greek. Everybody. In doing so, the judge and the plaintiff made an escape for all those nations who would receive him. See here in verse 16, he will be our refuge. Hear this from Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon formed against you will succeed. And you will refute any accusation raised against you in court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants. And their righteousness is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. Here we find that the true Israel became the the defendant. He willingly took on the sin of anyone from any nation who would call on his name. And all the wrath of that terrible day meant for his people, God poured out on the true Israel at the cross. 
So the only reason that the survivors escape on that day is because judgment has already been rendered on our refuge, the one who is worthy, the lamb who was slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. You may have noticed this lamb, though bloodstained, is very much alive. Had he, had he not been worthy, he wouldn't be alive. And had he not been alive, he wouldn't be worthy. So therefore, he can take all people everywhere. Those who were once named not my people and no mercy and make them a new kingdom of priests. This people... His church is the bride of the Lamb. He has taken them to be his wife. And as the two shall become one, the identity of Israel is not only the Redeemer, but all those who follow him in spirit and in truth. So now it's clear. On that day, at the Valley of Decision, the nations will fall. Irrespective of status, ethnicity, or works. But for those in Christ, the true Israel, they will stand because he stands. Now we get to the epilogue. The screen fades from black into the new scene. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Had a fountain and a, and a fountain should come forth from the house of the Lord and the water of the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. <sighs> Finally, after the whole history of Israel, the nations and the man, after the, land, after the Lord regrows the land, regenerates his people, restores the fortunes of Judah, renders judgments on the nations, Israel will rest. Amazing how the entire word of God wraps itself together. And the word through Joel says it twice, the Lord dwells in Zion. Back to paradise. For years the Lord dwelled with his people in the tabernacle, 
moving from place to place. Later, he dwelled in the people who called on his name, you and I. But on that day, the Lord will dwell in Zion with his people. This was always his intent. He made people for this. So that ever since the garden, he has been working to this great restoration with his bride. The creation has grown for it ever since. We see in verse 18 that the creation will produce deluges of drink. Sounds even better than the garden. You don't have to go to some shady corner store to get sweet wine. You just walk over to the mountain. (laughs) The places of violence will become desolate in a desert. Don't need to venture there. No, the, the party will be in Judah, Jerusalem, forever where the Lord dwells. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have loved us with such a great love that you'd lay down your life for us despite all of our failures. We thank you for the way that you make beautiful stories, true stories about you and the way that we can be restored to you. We ask that we would consider that deeply. We wouldn't go about our days ignoring the the promises you've given us, ignoring the good things in your word that you have said about us. Lord, we ask that we would take your judgment seriously. For any in this room who doesn't know where they stand at this valley of decision, that they would know that if they would only repent and believe on Christ, they would be Israel, saved on that day, not destroyed. Father, we thank you for that unbelievable grace. We ask that you would continually pour it out on us until that day when you return and dwell with your people. In Jesus' name, amen.